of Yirmiyahu to the northern kingdom and the, um, the, the recapitulation of that call and its, um, and, and its comforting uh, way that it's reconfigured in, uh, in chapter 30 and 31 of Sefer Yirmiyahu. And we're going to talk tonight, Amir Tzashem, about a few ancillary topics. Uh, one of them that I hope to get to tonight is the Makom Kivurasa of Rachel Imenu. Where exactly is Kever uh, Which, believe it or not, is something of a dispute. Academic scholars, even uh, within, uh, within our sources as well, within uh, Chachamenu and uh, Rishonim have a discussion of it, and hopefully we're going to be able to get to that tonight. So last time that we met, Yirmiyahu has gone to the north, and he has made his way from Anatot to the northern kingdom to call for reconciliation between brothers, for reconciliation between Yehuda and Yisrael, to bring them back together and to uh, hopefully usher in what would be a time of Geula, a time of redemption by, by bringing these two uh, formerly warring kingdoms back together with one another. And, and we see that initially his calls go unheeded, and we saw that the, 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 the call in chapter in, in Paragimel is directly paralleled by the way that it's described in a messianic, uh, in, a, in a geula sense, in a redemptive sense, the way that this call is described in Parak Lamed and Lamed Aleph with what we call Sefer HaNechama, the, the book of comfort in, in Yirmiyahu, which we've learned about is really a book that is uh, considered by Chazal at least to be uh, all destruction. So let's take a look. We're going to jump back into really right where we picked off last night. And what I want to do is maybe a little bit different. I'm going to read through the verses rather uh, quickly without interrupting. And then we're going to have a chance afterwards to, uh, to discuss them a little bit more in depth. Um, hopefully a little bit of a personal history in these psukim also. I'll show you why these psukim that we're going to read tonight are so profoundly important for uh, the religious Zionist movement. Some of the uh, verses that we're going to see tonight are, are, are virtually catchphrases and uh, rallying calls of religious Zionism and uh, the Shivat Zion movement and, uh, and, have, and have tremendous significance for modern Judaism, but also form some of the most important and intense verses about tshuva. And what better time to talk about tshuva than, uh, than this, the very beginning of Elul and Yemei Haratz and Varachamim. So we're going to Re, we're going to reread the first few psukim. Koamar Hashem, Matzachin ba'midvaram siyde charev haloch lehargio Yisrael. I am calling out to the nation that's been spared by the sword, uh, the people who have suffered under the sword for so long, and finally will come a time for their comfort to lay the to lay me down. Merachok Hashem nirali from a distance, whether it's in time or whether it's in space. We discussed last week from a distance or whether it's a spiritual remove. Yirmiyahu says, God has appeared to me, I have loved you in eternal love, God says, and therefore the bonds of love are bringing you back to me. I shall rebuild you and you shall be rebuilt, the virgin of Israel. And this is in contrast to the terms of harlotry and prostitution that were used to describe a wayward and backsliding Israel. You will take, you will gird yourself with the, with the jewelry and, uh, and the accoutrements of singing and song, uh, tupayim, uh, tambourines, drums, 
Misachakim, like the Malbim told us, you go out in the circle of the rejoicers, just as Miriam Hanavia led the women in dancing and playing the tambourines after the Geula of Mitzrayim. We see a description of this redemptive process of Yehuda and Yisrael, the northern and southern kingdoms, coming back together. And then we have a promise. Od tit'ikramim b'harei shomron. You will plant vineyards again in the mountains of the Shomron. Nit'u not'im v'chilalu. You will plant, they will be planted, and you will be able to redeem it. The, the, the chilalu, or the hillel, that we're referring to over here is the fact that we have a halacha of kerem ravai, that much like ma'asar sheni, that fields are not allowed, fruit trees are not allowed to be taken from for the first three years. That's the din of Orla. And in the fourth year, we have what's called neta or kerem revai. And the, pro, and the produce of the tree in the fourth year needs to be brought to Jerusalem and either redeemed or eaten in Jerusalem. Uh, a sign, I think, of centralization of all of the agriculture and all of the work that people do in the far-flung reaches of Eretz Yisrael to bring it back to the Beis HaMikdash, again signifying the central importance of this place. The Malbim says over here that this, uh, that you will replant your vineyards in the Shomron and you will vichilalu, you will redeem and you will be able to use the produce. Now, that is also a reference to the fact of their sin, that the people in the Shomron, which is deep, deep in the northern kingdom, they would plant their vineyards and they would not bring it to Yerushalayim to redeem it. They would not see the significance of following the Torah's law of redeeming Karim Ravai and, or eating Karim Ravai and bringing it to Yerushalayim. So this is a rectification that's enfolded into this promise that they will plant their vineyards yet again. There will be a day that the watchmen, Notzrim not from the language that we refer to uh, non-Jews, but Notzrim as referring to like Nitzor Lishoni Meira, guard my mouth from saying evil that we say at the end of Shemona Esrei. So Notzrim Bahar Ephraim, Kumu Alet Sion El Harashem Lakinu, the watchmen will call out throughout the lands of Ephraim, come, let us ascend, let us rise up to Zion. Yehuda and Yisrael, this vision of both of them coming together, this sweeping vision of the future that Yirmiyahu Hanavi is, uh, is telling us. Shimu devar Hashem goyim. So we're going to continue to read a little bit more. A few psukim later. Shimu devar Hashem goyim v'higidu v'ayim mimerchak v'amru mezeira Yisrael yikabtsenu v'shamru kiroedro. It will be heard from all around the world that the God who has dispersed the Jewish people amongst all the nations to the far-flung places, to even, as we might say, into our reading of the Ten Lost Tribes, disperse them amongst the nations, hidden, uh, crypto-Jews, people that don't even know that they're Jewish, all these hidden lost tribes, they are coming back. Kibbutz Galuyot, Kabetzit Nitchei, Amcha Yisrael, that the remnants and the scattered remains of the Jewish people are coming back. Like a shepherd bringing in his flock from taking in the pasture at the end. Because God has redeemed the Jewish people and saved them from stronger adversaries. Now, this is such an important verse. Because this becomes part of Birchas HaGeula that we say before Shemona Esrei, Baruch Atah Hashem Go'al Yisrael, that this is such a powerful verse of, redemp- of redemptive force and redemptive 
power that this was used in our blessing of the Geula to say that all of these things are signifiers of the Geula. Kabetz Nidchemo Yisrael, Yehuda and Yisrael coming in together, gathering in the exiles from amongst all the nations, a reconciling and a coming up to the temple. That is the substance of the Bricha Sagiula. Everyone will stream towards the goodness of God in Jerusalem, at Sion, in Zion, on the grain, and on the gray products, and on the oil, and on the flocks that they have, and on their, and on their cattle. What we have over here is a powerful descriptor. I mean, really describing to the, to the very details of how that would feel, that moment of reconciliation, of what that would look like, the bounty, both spiritual and physical, that happens when, when Yehuda and Yisrael are reconciled, when they are brought back together, this ingathering, the return and fulfillment of mitzvos, redemption of produce with the, re, with the replanting of vineyards and the, and, the, and the temporal bounty which they'll experience in this place as well of having all good things that will be at their fingertips. Velo Yosifu Lidava od, And they will not have any more. The translation they use over here is to pine, a sense of deep longing. But I think dava also carries with it a notion of depression, a notion of, of sadness, of loss, of of, 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 of irretrievable loss. Lidivonenu, uh, we'll say in modern Hebrew, to our great, to our great sorrow, to our great chagrin, lidivonenu, to our great disappointment. So all of these disappointments will be reversed. We come up to the last few psukim over here, and I want to, I want to, um, I, I, I want, yeah, I want to read straight through, and then I want to touch upon three particular issues that are kind of come up. But these psukim must be familiar to you. These psukim must be familiar to you. Ko amar Hashem. If you're singing the song in your head, uh, I, I would forgive you uh, because when I've been learning these psukim in preparation, I've been having the beautiful songs. There's different ones of, of kol, ko amar Hashem. So said God, kol berama nishma. A voice berama, a voice is heard in rama. It's a bitter weeping. Rachel, Mama Rachel, Rachel Imenu is crying over her children, is crying over her wandering children, and she's, and she's asking, she's crying, where are they? Where are my children? She refuses to be comforted. We know that uh, refusal to be comforted is in a sense a recognition that, that the mourning is not yet complete and can still be redeemed. That there's this sense that there is this uh, terrible loss that Rachel is constantly, inconsolably crying over. Rachel mevaka albaneha. These are the words of Yirmiyahu, some of the most powerful words, I think, really in, uh, in, in all of Tanakh. And this has become, and we'll see in a moment, through the Midrash and through Chazal, this Pasuk has taken on a larger-than-life quality in the Jewish memory and the Jewish consciousness. Ko amar Hashem, God says to Rachel, Min'i koleich mi bechi, stop your crying, ve'inayich mi dima, in your eyes from tears, let them be stopped up. Ki yesh sachar seich, there's going to be a final reward for all your work, and the work is the crying over her children, the beseeching God, the interceding over her children, and their loss, and their dispersal amongst the nations, and their exile, 
There's going to be a reward for it. Ne'um Hashem v'shavu me'eretz oyev. Your children will return back from the lands of their enemies. There's hope in the end. This is the song that if you make Aliyah and you come off the plane, so when they're waiting in the airport, this is the song that they used to sing to us when we would come back to Yeshiva and Yeshivat HaKotel. The Israelis were always trying to get us to stay. So, children will return back to the borders. I told you that these words are some of the most potent and powerful, not just in in all of Jewish memory, but specifically in the use of Shivat Zion in religious Zionist context, this notion of, of us witnessing these events, at least to a certain extent, even in our own days, that's how powerful and that's how important these verses have become. Shamoa shamati Ephraim, mitnodei yasartani vivaser ke'egelolumad, and here we now have one of the greatest visions of something that should be very significant to us during this time of Elul, of what does full tshuva look like? What does full reconciliation and recognition of our sins sound like? So Yirmiyahu puts these words into the mouth of Ephraim, into the mouth of the northern kingdoms, of the sons of, uh, of Yosef, of Ephraim, and Menashe, and the, ten North, and the rest of the northern tribes, he says, I've heard Ephraim, who's been wandering. Ephraim says, bemoaning themselves. I suffered like a wandering calf, a, 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 a child. I, was, I, I didn't know where I was going. Like David HaMelech says in Tehillim, referring to his own sins, Ta'iti I've wandered like a, a lost sheep. He says, I need you, Hashem, to teach me the proper way. Return me in tshuva. Bring me back. I know that only you are my God. This is a, a powerful way of expression of tshuva, an expression of a desire, a knowledge that we've been going down the wrong path and desire to be sent. He says, teach me, Hashem. Teach me what the right way to do is. When I thought about what I did, I regret and I'm embarrassed about the past. Those that were with us in Shabbos, uh, when we were learning the Rambam's Hilchas Tshuva, know that the two major components of Tshuva, even though, uh, uh, even though there's, um, in Rabbeinu Yonah, in Shari Tshuva, he describes about 20 different stages of Tshuva, two most crucial qualities are charat ala'ava, regret for the past, and a Kabbalah and an understanding for the future that I'm going to do better, I'm not going to return back to my sin. As I've done this return, as I've thought about what I've done, I regret my actions. I hit my thigh. How could it be that I sinned like this? How could it be that I was so stupid? How could it be that I followed these childish sins? And the truth is, is that Yeravam, the very first king of Yisrael, is also seen as somebody that was childish, listened to his childish advisors who gave him the wrong advice. And that was the, it was this impetuousness that caused the initial split and, and, and further caused it to be cemented and to leave it the way this is, that Ephraim, the northern kingdom, Yisrael is so lost. And, and, and they hit their thighs in recognition. How could it be that we sin so bad? He says, You should recognize these words from Tachnun when we repent every day. We're embarrassed, we're, 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 we're mortified by our actions. I'm carrying the sins of my youth. God responds, and this is the response that we read during our high holiday prayers. My sweet child Ephraim, 
you, were, you are the child plaything of my youth, right? The child that we carry on our shoulders, that we roll around with, that we tickle, that we laugh with. We know, the moment I speak of you, God says, the moment I speak of you, I remember, I remember the, the innocence of your youth. My stomach hurts. My st- I have stomach ache filled with pain, filled with this longing. I will surely have mercy on him, says Hashem, the last few psukim, and therefore a plan for return. Make for yourself signposts and markers. This pasuk is a vision of the path back. You make for yourself signposts, guide marks, wayposts to remember the road back. Put your heart to it. Know that you will come back during the, in the, on this highway back to, back to Zion. And he says, even though you've gone astray, you will surely return to your cities. These are, these are some unbelievable psukim over here. These are some of the most important psukim of tshuva, of repentance. And these are also some of the most important psukim of religious Zionism, of reshivatzion, of return to Zion. So I want to jump into a few very important topics that come up with these psukim. The first thing I want to show you is, um, is a shul. Here's the shul. This is the central Beit Knesset. I'm going to make this a little bit larger for us. This is the central Beit Knesset. Uh, I guess I'm sorry for those that will be listening to this later on, but you could Google the central Beit Knesset Mishkan Meir in Kidumim. If you read the Aron Kodesh, this is the main shul in Kidumim. Kidumim is a very large yeshuv, one of the oldest yeshuvim in the Shomron. So in the central Beit Knesset, I don't know if you could read the parochas that stands there every Shabbos and every day. O tit ukramim baharei Shomron is the verse that comes from the prophecy of Yirmiyahu over here talking to the northern tribes, to the people that live in the Shomron, that they will rebuild and they will replant uh, kramim, vineyards in the Shomron. Just to show you what a vineyard in the Shomron looks like, let's think of a Shomron winery. Um, I don't know, I can't think, Yikvei Shomron. Here, let's see, this is what it looks like. This is the image that he's referring to. Otit Ikramim, right? I guess, um, I guess this is exactly what it looks like. Yakev Shomron. this is what it looks like over here. Ah, that's what the Yikavim and Shomron look like. And we are indeed replanting them. We are indeed replanting in the Shomron. That is the central Beit Knesset referring exactly to this Pasuk over here. And what does it say? They will plant and they will be mechalal on it. I want to show you another thing. So this is Kever 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 Rachel. Let's see Kever Rachel. And I'm going to show you Ah, no, what I want to show you Nava Here, this is Kever Rachel. And the parochas and the women's side in Kever Rachel is the wedding dress of Nava Applebaum. Nava Applebaum was killed with her father on the eve of her wedding day. Uh, she was supposed to be married to Hanan Sand, who was a friend of mine, an older boy in Yeshivat Kotel, an Israeli, who I learned with sometimes. It says, Al Hakalal Netzach. She is the bride for forever. Here's a little bit of a, I thought a better picture, but this is. Nava's wedding dress was made into a parochet and this is truly, I mean, if there was ever a manifestation 
of Rachel Mivakal Baneha, that Rachel cries for her children, so surely would be this image of Nava Applebaum, of this, um, of this, of this image of, of, of a father and her daughter, uh, and these, these special Jews that were taken in such a cruel and horrific way. And um, I said that we, we read that, we read that, uh, we read that Pasuk with a sense of, of the, the duality of Jewish experience, is that we have both of these psukim that are manifested in Eretz Yisrael, the tale of two parochases. There's the parochas over here, Racham Evakal Baneha, of Nava Applebaum's wedding dress turned into a parochas, and we have another parochas, a symbol of the rebuilding of modern day Israel and the sense of hope that our generation has been able to fill. Another parochas in Israel, several miles north, that says the Pasuk in the same chapter, Otit Ikramim Bahare Shomron. I, say, I would say if there's ever a representation of the duality of the modern Jewish experience, especially in Israel, it would be from these two psukim and these two parochases that appear in two distinct places in the land of Israel. Nava Applebaum's dress, Rachel Mevaka Albaneha, and Oti Tu Kramim Bahare Shomron, Nitu Ditoim Vihilalu, that we see this symbolizing the, um, the, the rebirth and the replanting and indeed a fulfillment in part of the vision of Yirmiyahu. I'll say my personal connection to this Mishkan Meir, how would I know that this is the parochas? Because I davened in this shul for two years. Uh, when I was a lone soldier, my adoptive family lived in Kedumim, and this was the shul that everybody came to on Friday nights. So I remember, I remember that this was indeed the Aron Kodesh in Kedumim, uh, a sign of their return, a declaration indeed of their return. Of course, here's Kever Rachel, a colorized photo of Kever Rachel. Um, this was the lonely uh, road on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, obviously, today it's surrounded by very high walls and protective barriers, um, and it's a, a heavily protected zone. There's been uh, no shortage of rock attacks, Molotov cocktail attacks, shootings uh, that have happened to people uh, going to Kever Rachel. Um, but this is what it looked like a lonely, a uh, beautiful place um, in the middle of nowhere on the road between Derech Efrata, between Efrat and Yerushalayim. But we're going to come back to that in a moment. So I want to talk, uh, first we'll start small a little bit, and I want to talk about a few things over here. So the first thing I want to talk about is this language that's being used over here that Ephraim is described as ve'ivaser ke'egel lo lumad. So as a calf, an unlearned calf, so what exactly might be the symbolism behind this description of Ephraim, a young wayward Ephraim as a calf that doesn't know? So I think that we have to go back to the very beginning of Yisrael, of the northern kingdom, in order to understand what perhaps this illusion might be. And I think that this illusion might be referring to something that's described in Sefer Malachim Aleph, Perak Yodbeis Pasuk Chavches. Uh, Dafka using this language of a calf is important in, because not only is it comforting, but it's, words, it's chastising words as well. According to Sefer Malachim, the very first king of the breakaway northern kingdom, Yeravam, was afraid that even after he had broken off, he was worried that people in the northern kingdom would still make their way back to Rechavam and the southern kingdom to Yehuda and to the Beis HaMikdash. So what he did was he decided to make two golden calves and he placed one of them in Beit El and one of them he placed even further north in Dan. Vayashne Eglei Zahav was described in the Pasuk and he said to them, 
Surely a great sin, but also, to be quite fair, echoing the words of Aharon HaKohen, when the Egel Hazav, when the initial golden calf was fashioned, when Moshe had tarried to come down, and the words that were said were, So Yeravam echoes those very same words when he fashions two golden calves to say to people here, and, and the small temple was, was set up at each site, to say you don't need to go down to the southern kingdom. So I think over here is already a, a direct reference. Like a childish calf that hasn't been taught the ways, that hasn't been taught what to do. In this, words of comfort is still a veiled rebuke, I think, referencing the very first sins or what, what, uh, what solidified the split between the kingdoms. So that's the first thing I wanted to point out, this imagery of the calf that's being described over here. The second thing I want to discuss is, uh, I know we're going slightly out of order, is on the last verse over here, where it says, Atzivilach Tziunin, and in English, set thee up waymarks or guideposts. So what exactly is this talking about over here? So Rashi, there's a very famous comment that Rashi says. Rashi comments on the Pasuk in Dvarim, which should be familiar. V'samtem es dvarai ele alevavchem ve'al nafshechem. Place these words <clears throat> on your heart and on your soul. Tie it around your arm. Tie them as a sign on your arms. And they should be totafot. We're not going to do the business of translating totafot over here. Tat. Uh, two different signs between your eyes and on your arm. Rashi explains on that Pasuk. Even after you will be exiled, make yourself, adorn yourself with the commandments. Wear phylacteries, make for yourself uh, uh, to put on your doorposts. So that the mitzvot will not be new to you when you return back, when you eventually return, like Yermia was describing, when you eventually return, whether it's after the destruction of the first temple or whether the final return to the land of Israel. And Rashi continues and says, And this is the meaning of the verse, Rashi says, the usage of mitzvot in Galut, so that we don't forget in exile what the mitzvot are, wearing tefillin, putting up mezuzot on our dwellings, is based on this verse over here in Sefer Yirmiya of Atzivi Lach Tzionim, make for yourself signposts. And this comes from the Sifri, Parshas Ekev, Remez Mem Gimel, that gives uh, an image of a king saying to a wayward son or a consort, he says, wear the royal garments even when I've sent you out of the palace so that when you return, you will remember what it is like to feel like royalty. Now, this is a massive discussion because if you understand Rashi in a simple way, what Rashi is essentially saying is that mitzvot in exile outside the land of Israel is something of a, a training regimen that they don't really count in the sense that mitzvot might count in the land of Israel for sure, or that maybe it's just practice so that we don't forget. Indeed, it's not just me saying that. There were, uh, there, there were many Jews. We have a Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin on Daf... Um, I forgot what Daf it is. It's in the hundreds. So Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin tells us that there were indeed Jews 
that told that said they came to Yechaskel Hanavi, and they indeed believed that they were of the opinion that once they were exiled, once the temple was destroyed, so our Brit, our covenant with God, had been broken. And therefore, mitzvot were no longer binding. We're no longer bound by the covenant. And they, the Gemara describes people coming to Yechaskel, to Ezekiel the prophet, and saying this to Yechaskel. There's no more old mitzvot, there's no more yoke of the commandments because we've been sent into exile. So Hashem's response through the Navi Yechaskel, and it's described in the Gemara over there, I have to remember where the Gemara is. It's in Sanhedrin in the early hundreds. I forgot where. So Hashem's response is that they were sent into Gullus because of their sins to be sure. But that doesn't mean that the covenant has been broken. The covenant is still very much a thing, still very much in effect. And we still very much have to keep the mitzvot. And it has not been abrogated, even though we've been put into Gullus. That was our own doing. And in fact, it's the keeping of the mitzvot and the, and the performance of the mitzvot that will indeed bring us back. In any event... Some say that Rashi over here is actually a ta'ut sofer, that it's a, uh, that it's a scribal error. Because in some of the manuscripts of Rashi, it writes taf vav mem. Taf vav mem. So taf vav mem. So Rashi, in the text that I read to you now, that I put in the footnote over here, interprets it as tefillin umizuzos. So according to uh, a tradition brought down in the name of the Vilna Gaon, the Tafav Mem is really only referring to Trumot Vimasrot, to ties, meaning that what Rashi is referring to is actually quite exact. Yes, there are certain mitzvot that indeed are not performed while we're in exile, specifically mitzvot hatluyot ba'aretz, mitzvot that are dependent upon the land. And indeed, those mitzvot, we learn about them. They're guideposts, they're signs for us. We want to fulfill them in the future, but we cannot fulfill them when we're in exile. And then, to go, so that maybe Rashi, of course, holds that the mitzvot, nobody, no one should read Rashi as saying the mitzvot are only uh, a training regimen or don't count as much while we're, while we're in exile. But that Rashi is referring to the mitzvot that indeed we, can, we cannot fulfill when we're in exile and can only be fulfilled in the land of Israel. Furthermore, the Maharal, in his commentary, a super commentary on Rashi in the Sefer Gur Aryeh on that Pasuk in Devarim. So the Maharal writes that what Rashi might be uh, saying is actually Dafka. No, there's no scribal error over here. It's that there are indeed two mitzvot that we keep in Galut, that we keep in exile, specifically as a sign about the importance of mitzvot. Not because we can't fulfill them in Galut, and that is tefillin mezuzot. When we look at the mezuzot, when we come into our dwelling, the mezuzah is a sign to remember the mitzvot always. And tefillin, if you wear phylacteries, so tefillin are also a sign, meant, both of them are described as an os, are described as a tziyun, as a signpost to remind ourselves of all the mitzvot. So the maral for his part says, no, Rashi is exactly as he's supposed to be, tefillin and mezuzah are specifically those two mitzvot that are, ta- that are talking about what to remember and what to remind ourselves while we're in exile. In any event, at any rate, we have, we have the commentaries of the Ramban and Rabbeinu Bachaye and many others who tell us that, yeah, there is a difference between the land of Israel and outside the land of Israel when it comes to the keeping of commandments, but the commandments are still in full effect outside the land of Israel. The difference is in the quality of the fulfillment of the commandments. The Ramban has a famous discussion on the tiviut, on the natural nature of the land of Eretz Yisrael, that Eretz Yisrael naturally lends itself towards a greater fulfillment of mitzvot, towards a, a, more, a, a more intense 
a recognition of mitzvah because it's the land of Ene Hashem Lukecha Bamireshis Hashanat Achris Hashana. This is the land that God is always focused on and God is always looking at from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. That is exactly why mitzvah fulfillment in Eretz Yisrael is so much more intense and the land itself responds to our mitzvah because we know that if we don't fulfill the mitzvot, the takiyarat, so some will be kicked out. So the land is much deeper, but of course we fulfill mitzvot in exile. Rabbeinu Bachayan, I'm going to read you, and we're talking about Rabbeinu Bachia ben Asher, who was a uh, 13th and 14th century biblical commentator, one of my favorites. He's all the way up there on the shelf, if you could see the, the green, um, where my cursor is over here, right? That's, uh, that's Rabbeinu Bachaye, who is a, a beautiful commentary on the Torah. So Rabbeinu Bachaye on the Torah tells us that no, there is, he puts it like this. I'm just going to read it to you. Even though, of course, we perform the commandments outside the land of Israel, and it's an obligation upon us, not a chova on the land. It's not land dependent. It's dependent upon us. We have to fulfill these mitzvot. To do them wherever we might be. Our rabbis have taught us that the main fulfillment of these mitzvot is only in Eretz HaKidosha, is only in the Holy Land. So that's the commentary of Hatsivu Tziunim, that make for yourself signposts, the mitzvot are our guideposts on the way back from exile to the land of Israel. Now, with our time left, I want to talk about one last thing. I'm going to share my screen with you once more, and I'm going to show you, um, here's Kever Rachel once again. We have over here a description of Kol Berama Nishma, a voice is heard in Rama. So you might be surprised to know that there is some discussion about where exactly is Kever Rachel, from where is Rachel crying for her children. Now traditionally, Yaakov and his family are traveling near Beit Lechem and Rachel, uh, Rachel dies in childbirth and Yaakov buries Rachel not in Hebron with the rest of the Yavos and Imahos and not in Beit Lechem, but on the road in the middle of nowhere. So he buries her there in anticipation of the Jews leaving Jerusalem in exile, that they would hear the sound of Mama Rachel, the sound of Rachel Imenu crying and waiting for their return. According to the Medrash, Rachel, it's Rachel's weeping specifically of all the matriarchs and patriarchs, it's Rachel Imenu who arouses Hashem's mercy and eventually is responsible for God's return. And if, uh, you could refer back to our Shiurim on Tehillim, I forgot which numbers, where we talked about Tikkun Rachel and Tikkun Leah in, uh, in, in the um, Tikkun Rachel and Tikkun Leah and Tikkun Chatzos, uh, talking about the nature of Rachel's weeping and the nature of Rachel's connection to the exile. I'm going to read you the Medrash in English. The Medrash says like this, Rashi quotes the Medrash. Um, Rashi says, let me see if I can find it. Rashi describes that Rachel is weeping for her children. Ah, Ra- when I was coming from Padan, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the road with a way to go before Ephrat. And I buried her there on the road to Ephrat, that is Beit Lechem. So that comes from Parshas Vayichi. I buried her there. Know that I buried her there at God's command. Yaakov buried Rachel Imenu there because God commanded him to, so that she would aid her children. When Nevuzradan, the executioner and the general of Nebuchadnezzar exiled them. They passed by there and Rachel left her grave and wept and begged for mercy on their behalf. As it says, a voice is heard in Ramah, Kol Rama Nishma, 
of mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. And God responds, your work will be rewarded. Yesh declares the Lord, your children will return to their borders. This powerful vision of, of Rachel's cry and Rachel's weeping, bringing people back. And this is the force of Rachel being one of the most beloved figures in all of Jewish history, in Midrash, Chazal, in art, in music, and, uh, and Psukim, in this description of Rachel interceding and acting as an intercessor on her children's behalf. And uh, really, you could read it in a much narrower way that Rachel Imenu is really only crying for the return of her, chil- of her children, specifically those from the northern kingdom, the sons of Ephraim, to return. There is a very narrow reading that can be read over here, but I think there's an expansive reading that she's actually, like the Medrash tells us, is weeping over everybody, over the sons of Leah, of Yehuda, uh, that, are, that, are going to be, uh, that are going to be exiled as well. Yehuda and Binyamin, to be quite honest. And uh, the Chumash tells us that when it came time to bury her, he owed kivras ha'aretz. Kivras is a very hard word to define. We're going to talk about it in a second. Lavo Ephrata, they're on the way to the town of Ephrat, which is uh, the biblical town of Ephrat is the same town that we call, not really a town, the city of Ephrat nowadays, which is very close to our hearts, Lincoln Square Synagogue. And then it says, And Racha was buried on the road to Ephrat, which we call Beit Lechem, Matseva Al Kivrasa. And a Matseva was erected on her kever. Uh, this, what we see over here actually, this is actually a further addition. I know that Sir Moses Montefiore and his wife added on to it. Nowadays it's far bigger. Apparently, back in the day, this was a very open site, that it was uh, totally Isgalia. It was in a revealed state. And, um, and, that, uh, and that this was the way that it, was, that it was placed on the road. So that is a description of the burial of Rachel, that this is Kever Rachel. So that's why I ident- we identify Kever Rachel traditionally with the spot that many of us have been to, which is in Beit Lechem, modern Beit Lechem. Now, there's a story, before we move a little bit further, there's a story brought in Rabbi Lau's book, and I checked, it's also mentioned in many newspapers, I'm just going to read the story very quickly. I hope it's okay. I'm just going to stop, share for a second. Is it okay if we go about five minutes over tonight, uh, just in order to finish this particular topic and to move on to something afterwards? Okay, thank you. Uh, obviously, nobody's bound to stay. Um, but uh, the story goes like this. In marking the joint anniversary of Yitzchak Rabin's murder, Hanan Porat, a former Knesset member and one of the leaders of Gush Emunim, stated the agreement with Arafat, he's talking about the Oslo Accords, the agreement with Arafat had already been initialed, stating that Rachel's tomb would be designated as Palestinian territory as part of Bethlehem. When suddenly, Menachem Porush, an ultra-Orthodox Israeli minister of Knesset who had served in the Knesset for decades, grabbed Rabin and shook him, shouting, Rabbi Yitzchak, we're talking about Mama Rachel. Tears streamed down his face and drenched Rabin's suit. I saw Rabin flush and then pale. He didn't know what to do with himself. He said, give me a moment to consider. Then, right in front of us, he called Shimon Perez, then foreign minister, and said to him, regarding Rachel's tomb, I wish to reconsider. So that's the significance of this place in Jewish memory, in Jewish ideas, and how we think about things. So that is Kever Rachel, but that is the traditional view of it. However, scholars, 
and also Chachamim uh, and also Mefarshim have questioned whether or not this is the proper identification. The traditional point of view says that Yaakov and his family were traveling south from Beit El all the way down to Hebron on what we call nowadays Derech Avot. You could still walk Derech Avot nowadays. So it says that they were traveling down and that would make sense that Ephrod is on the way and that would still be reconciled, didn't need to be reconciled, that would still follow with the traditional approach. However, there's a Pasuk in Shmuel Aleph. I want to show you the Pasuk. There's a Pasuk in Shmuel Aleph in Pasuk Beis. says that after Shmuel is appointing Shaul HaMelech, he gives him three signs. And one of them says, When you go today from me, says you will find two men from Kvura. So look at the translation here. How difficult it is. Two men by the tomb of Rachel in the border of Binyamin at Tzeltzach. So Tzeltzach is a city it, well in the northern kingdom, in the Shomron. And if we're saying Kvurat Rachel is in Kvur Binyamin, so that would be a different location than what we're talking about, which is Vederach Ephrata. Furthermore, how do you reconcile that with Ephrat? So some people say that, no, it's simply referring to not the city of Ephrat, but Ein Perat. Ein Perat, let me see if I can... Uh, We'll see what shows up. When I, whenever I open a new tab, it's a new work of art from the Google Art Project. So here's Ain, Ain Prat. Here's where Ain Prat is. Let me show you where Ain Prat. Ain Prat is Wadi Kelt, right? Ain Prat is an area that is firmly right near, by the way, right near um, Anatot. Here's Anatot over here. Uh, and here's Ain Prat Nature Reserve. So maybe that's Derech Efrata, which puts us also in the area of Rama, um, also very closely connected to me. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna see if I could zoom in. So here is what we call Al-Ram nowadays, it's a Arab city. So here's Geva bin Yamin, also known as Adam. And here is Rama, we call, that's where Shmuel Hanavi is from, Shmuel Haramati. Just gonna zoom in a little bit. I hope I'm not breaking any laws by doing this. This is the Tzahal base over here. You can see the structures over here a little bit. This is the Tzahal base called Basis Rama. I spent about six months here in Rama. Um, this, is, this is how some people understand Kol Birama Nishma. A voice is heard in Rama. Now this is obviously quite some distance. Let's zoom out for a second. This is quite some distance from, from Beit Lechem, right? Very, dif- very distant from it. That's how some people use the word kivarat in the Pasuk about Yaakov uh, bearing Rachel, is that kivarat means very, very far from Beit Lechem, looking all the way down the road, but Rachel is buried over here in Ramah somehow. So that's how some people understand it based on this Pasuk in Shmuel, which tells us that Kevar Rachel is in Vul Binyamin. Now, what some people do to resolve this is that they simply put the comma in a different place. And I'll show you in a second what that might mean. But let's move a little bit further in our discussion. And I want to wrap up. I, I know that I'm going over time. So based on that, some people said that Ephrat is not the biblical city of Ephrat. It's actually Wadi Kelt, which is in Chevel bin Yamin, which is well within that area in the north. Uh, Kever Rachel is in Ramah, Kol Rama Nishma. And it's not, of course, in Beit Lechem, uh, based on this Pasuk in Shmuel Aleph. And therefore, Kever Rachel is not with the traditionally identified place. So, that's the problem. The Tosefta and Sota 
already offers an answer. The Tosefta in Sota tells us, let me share my screen hopefully one last time with you. The Tosefta in Sota asked this very question. So they were way ahead of the scholars or people that want to uh, make themselves uh, feel better because that everybody else has it wrong. So it says, we saw this. So have we found that Rachel is buried in the tribe, in the, in the portion of Binyamin in Tzaltzach? Rachel is buried in the portion of Yehuda in Beis Lechem. That's the passage that we read from Sefer Bereshis. And Ephrat is only in Yehuda, in the southern kingdom. What the Tosefta, the way the Tosefta answers it, it says, when Shmuel is talking to Shaul over here, he's saying, Right now, they're in Ephrat. They're in Beit Lechem by the Kever Rachel. They will come to you eventually to Gvul Yamin and meet you in Tzaltzach. That a comma is just missing or a comma is put in the wrong place by the people that read this differently. That's the way that the Tosefta reconciles this. The Ramban, for his part, and, I, and by the way, it's very easily reconciled. For example, you look in the Targum Yonasan on this Pasuk, it says, Kol birama nishma. It doesn't mean, if it was talking about Rachel crying out from Rama, it would say, Kol mi Rama nishma, from Rama. From the fact that it says, birama nishma, Targum Yonasan simply says, Kol birumo shal olam. Rama is not reference to a place. Rama is a reference to a spiritual height. Something that we say, Things that stand at the very top of the world. That this voice, is st- this voice of Rachel crying for her children, when are they going to return, is something at the very top, the very firmaments of existence in this world. So I want to show you one last thing on this, which is actually quite beautiful. Um, let's take a look at the commentary of the Rambam. The Rambam writes, initially, the Rambam has two comments on this. The Rambam initially identifies uh, Rama, Kol Rama, that Rachel's Kever is actually, uh, according to what we would say in Sefer Shmuel, in Rama, in Chevel Binyamin. And look what the Rambam does. And that's how the Rambam has, if you open up the Rambam in Parshas Vayichi, you will see it there. However, the Rambam earlier in Parshas Vayishlach has a kind of correction. The Rambam quotes the... Um, the Spanish philologist from Menachem Ibn Saruk, he says, Kivrata Aretz, a distance, Menachem Pirish Lashon Kavir, Mahalach Rav, that Rachel is buried a long way from Ephrat, all the way in the north, all the way by, by the tribe of Binyamim in Rama. So he later on says, he later on says, he explains, Shir Mahalach Eretz Ochel. Uh, the walking distance from the morning until lunchtime. However, he says, in the parentheses, can you see over here? That's what I wrote in the beginning. I initially thought Kever Rachel was in Chevel Binyamin, was in the portion of Binyamin. Like Menachem Ibn Saruk, like the Radak, the Akshav, but now the Ramban was merited to reach the land of Israel, the Akshav. When I came to Yerushalayim, praise God, 
Ra'isi be'enai. I saw with my own eyes. She'eming furas Rachel of Eislechem afilu mil. The distance from Kever Rachel to Eislechem is less than a kilometer. So the word kivrat as being a distance is totally, uh, is totally wrong, totally mistaken. The Ramban himself revised his understanding of where Kever Rachel is to say that Kever Rachel is indeed to be identified with the traditional resting place of Kever Rachel where Jews have poured out their prayers and hopefully will be answered in Mirz Hashem soon. Vishavu banim ligvulam, knowing that Mama Rachel will not have to cry for us anymore. Rachel Mivaka Vaneha will be hopefully filled up very, very soon. Min Ikolech Mibechi shall stop crying. Vishavu banim ligvulam, Yehuda and Yisrael returning all together uh, to, be, uh, to be planting vineyards. Vichilalu in the Vesa Mikdash. May we merit to see that speedily in our days. I want to uh, 